You are listening to Talking Images, the official podcast of icmforum.com. Well, hello everyone. I'm Chris, and let me just put it like this. It's countdown time. The year 2020 is done, and as always, it's time to go through our very favorite films of the year that was. And wow, we have gone through so much prep for this episode. I don't think we've ever prepared so long or so hard for a singular episode in Talking Images history. Over the last six or seven months, we have actively exchanged recommendations and slowly formed our lists to the point that we feel that, yes, we're ready for this. So if you've ever listened to any of our previous best of the year episodes, you know the structure already, but just in case you don't, it's pretty simple. We will first list the films that, unfortunately, we cannot dig that into in this episode. That is our number 10 to 6 favorite films of the year. And then we'll get into the actual discussion. Taking turns, each of us will present our fifth choice with comments and discussion from the others. And once done, we move on to our fourth choice, third, second, and finally, our number one pick of 2020. In the cases where a film is on multiple lists, we will skip it for this spot and allow the person who loved it the most to present it. This is because as our love of the films grow, each film will be given more and more time. But, let me just say this, there's very few overlaps here. So, let's just jump straight into it and run through the films that unfortunately could not make the proper discussion portion of the episode. Well, unless some good Samaritan actually picked it for their top five. Starting with you, Mathieu, what are your 10 to 6 favorite film of the year? Hi Chris, hi everyone. I actually have a good Samaritan in Seoul, because two of my 6 to 10s are on Seoul's top 5. Uh, number 10 and 8, so we'll get to those later. Uh, but the other ones I want to briefly mention are a French comedy by the name of Tout Simplement Noir, by number 9, Simply Black in English. And as the name might imply, it's a comedy about race relations in France right now, which is a subject you don't see as much in French comedies as you do in American ones, for example. So it's a, a really fresh perspective on a subject that can be sometimes difficult to nail right. And uh, Jean-Pascal Zadi, the, the star and director, is really breaking through with that film in, in a way that I love. My number seven is a documentary called Aunt Galante, again a French documentary. It's about an opera that was made in France recently. It's an 18th century opera, but made with street dancers. And so it's this melding of two worlds in, in the art world, right, of the street with the very traditional form of the opera. And it's a fascinating documentary, essentially a making-of documentary, but very well done. And then my number six would be The Invisible Man, the Lee Wanell film uh, with Elizabeth Moss. Just a, a great horror film, just perfectly executed with an excellent performance at, at its center by Elizabeth Moss, an actress I absolutely love. And some really standout scenes, just uh, an, an excellently executed uh, horror film. So, Tom, what are your 10 to 6 favorite films? Uh, Chris, hi everyone. First of all, I just want to 
talk a bit about my exploration through 2020 films. I managed to see 144 films in total as I was desperate to try and find five favourites. Unfortunately, I could only find four favourites, but there were a lot of films I really loved amongst them. So my top 10 countdown starts with number 10, Gretel and Hansel, an absolutely beautiful horror film that reinvents the classic fairy tale with a striking soundtrack and eerily creepy visuals that make for an incredibly atmospheric experience. Number nine is the comedy Shiver Baby, an astute comedy about a Jewish college student who bumps into both her sugar daddy and ex-girlfriend whilst with her parents at a funeral. Number eight is a film that is in Soul's top five, so we'll get to that later. Number seven is Anything for Jackson, a sinister Canadian horror film about a bereaved Satanist couple who kidnap a pregnant lady to carry out their evil designs. And number six, which just missed out on the cut, is a film called Butchers. This is a horror that borrows heavily from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Wrong Turn to deliver an unforgettably sadistic ride for four unsuspecting teens who encounter a depraved family when their car breaks down in the middle of nowhere. So, what are the films that you would perhaps even lose sleep over if you could not present them right now? Hi Chris, hi everyone. Uh, Tom, it's an incredibly hard act to follow. You've seen 144 films from 2020. As of this moment, I've seen 71. So I've seen less than half that you have, even though I feel like I've gone through tons of films from 2020 myself. Even though I haven't seen as many as some of my other co-hosts, I have found quite a few that I liked a lot. Narrowing down a 6 to 10 was really hard as it is, let alone the 5 through number 1. But the five films I wanted to talk about as runners-up, one of them is a film that I only saw recently on Netflix. It's called Spree. It's a black comedy about an aspiring social media star who begins committing murders while working as a rideshare driver. The film mostly consists of a series of device screens like Unfriended or Searching, and I love those sorts of films. And there's lots of dark laughs as his very few followers keep commenting on how fake everything looks and how it's a scam, commenting in oblivion when he's actually going through and killing his people for real. So very interesting film. Another film, so I guess my number nine that I'd like to mention is The Hunt. It stars Betty Gilpin. It's basically an updating of The Most Dangerous Game. But it's not just that. It's not just about hunting humans. It's also a movie that constantly challenges our expectations. So it starts off with a whole lot of different protagonists, only for each of those characters to get killed, move on to another character, gets killed, move on to another character, gets killed, until we finally arrive at Betty Gilpin. And there's a whole lot of other surprises in store, but I don't want to spoil it too much, but that's an awesome horror film. Uh, my number eight, I've also got a horror film. It's a film called Lucky. There's a ton of films called Lucky. This is the film called Lucky that's currently uh, showing on Shudder, the streaming service. It's about a woman who wakes up and is calmly told by her husband one night that the stranger breaking into the house does so every night. Things only get stranger as she then continues to fend off the attacker, only for him to vanish whenever she looks away from him. So you're constantly wondering, is she stuck in a time loop? Is something more supernatural going on? And it all goes in a very interesting direction. 
For my number seven for this podcast, I've got a film called Air Conditioner. It's a movie from Angola, and it's very meditative. It's set during a spate of air conditioning units that are mysteriously falling out of tall buildings. There's some really great shots of the main character just wandering the streets, virus to camera work creeping up from behind him, lots of neon lighting, lots of nifty low camera angles, and just very mysterious what exactly is going on. And my number six, my runner-up, actually is going to be mentioned later on by Mature, so I am going to not mention it at the moment. Thanks very much, Saul. Uh, my number 10 of the year is the Polish merry-go-round by Daria Wojciech, which is a visually stunning midway point between essentially Aki Kodesmaki and Paul Vecelli in the 80s, but with a proper cult edge. My number nine is Father by Serban Kolwicz, which almost feels like a Serbian take on Ken Loach with a crushing look at family separation and power inequality between the state and parents, or in this case, a father who simply won't give up. On my number eight, I actually share a film with Saul, Air Conditioner by Frederic, a quirky art house film from Angola, which just like Saul says, has this stunning neon look where air conditioner units just keep falling from buildings all around a class-based society, following these two people from the lower working class or servant classes trying to figure out how to replace their boss's air conditioner with a lot of uh, humor along the way. My number seven is Wendy by Ben Seitlin who is bringing the same kind of visceral strength and beauty as he created for Beast of the Southern Wild, immersing us in a really different take on the Peter Pan story, based in the almost scary and unnerving play of children. And finally, on my number six position, I have Some Children by Mayid Mayidi, which generally feels like a neorealist fairy tale, blending the innocence of childhood and harsh reality. It's not just a battle of good or evil. It's not just an exploration of childish fantasy and wonder, but it's just this crushing sense of the real world around them and the idea that their dreams really just is a fairy tale. It's just a beautiful, harsh film I strongly recommend to everyone. And with that, we are into the real episode, the real meat of things, where we'll start discussing the films amongst ourselves. So, turning to you again, Mathieu, what is your fifth favorite film of 2020? All right, so my number five is Wolfwalkers, the Irish animated film by Cartoon Saloon, the studio who did uh, Song of the Sea and The Secret of Kells. A studio with a very distinctive style, but I think Warfokers is their best yet. It takes place during the colonization of Ireland by the English under Cromwell, who is the main villain, even though he's never named. And it's about two girls. Uh, one of them is English and from the city, but, you know, the adventurous type. And the other is Irish and a Warfoker, which is basically the Irish version of werewolves. And it's all based on the real history of the English basically exterminating the wolves of Ireland at the time, 
basically to endear themselves to the population because wolves are kind of a problem. And it builds a good coming-of-age story of adventure while using both the historical contexts of English colonization and the folklore uh, surrounding the Irish forest to great effect. But what makes this film special for me is the animation. It really feels like a step up for Cartoon Saloon. Uh, they're melding their unique style, which is especially great for these rich, detailed backgrounds, with some anime touches in the action scenes that really help bring a lot of dynamism and vitality to the film. You get this contrast between the really blocky and angular city people and the flowery and round characters from the forest, and it's all a perfect combination with those elaborate backgrounds. You add to that a great use of color, especially when fire is involved, good music, which again breaks a bit with the house style by having a full song in it uh, with lyrics and all, that works surprisingly well as an emotional high point. That's again something that reminded me a bit of anime, where you often have this kind of pop song in the middle. And yeah, it works really well here, even though I, I'm usually not a fan of that. You get this really, really accomplished animated film, and that tells a very engaging and, if a little conventional, still very emotionally fulfilling story of these two girls having to work through their differences and obviously learn something along the way, but not in a, you know, not, not, not preachy, just a very good coming of age narrative. So yeah, Wolfwalkers, my number five. So Wolfwalkers, I agree. It's a very great looking film. I think the point that you've made mature about the animation, the contrast between the characters is a really good point. And the backgrounds are gorgeous. And there's some really great effects in there as the characters are cut and as they bleed. Uh, it's just a really striking looking film. As a narrative, though, you described it as a little conventional. And I'll probably say that's maybe an understatement. The story really didn't grab me at all. It all seemed very, you know, old hat stuff that I've seen before. Uh, the folklore and mythology didn't interest me at all. I'm not really into mythology much in the first place, and it didn't grab me at all. Uh, I've got, you know, a young girl and a father who won't listen, and she eventually wins him over, and it's sort of like, yeah, I've been there, done that sort of thing. So as a narrative, the film didn't really engage with me, although I do think it did have quite a spunky young protagonist. Didn't really engage me as a story, but I agree that it is a beautiful looking film. Yeah, I'm pretty much in the same boat as well. I think that it's a stunning film. I think that the animation style that uh, Tom Moore has developed stands out for a reason. But in terms of just plotting, and this film is a fairly basic fairy tale that could just as easily have been brought to life by Disney or Pixar. It, it just felt like a little bit too slight. I mean, it's a great children's film. Certainly, I think children will enjoy this for years to come. And it's a very good film for adults as well. But it just didn't quite strike me as a great film for adults, if I can put it like that. I would have to agree with both Sol and Chris. Uh, they've hit the nail on the head with this one. It's a beautiful film, there's no doubt about it. Striking visuals, animated really well. There's also some really good uh, voice acting from Anonisi in the lead as the young girl, and it's always great to hear uh, Sean Bean's gnarly voice as well. But it was the, the conventional storytelling that, that Mattia mentioned himself that didn't really grab me as such. It's a, a traditional story and it, it's well told, though it lacks the excitement to to really draw you in. That's what I felt anyway. So a good film, but just shy of, of being a great one from my perspective. 
So, so just to, to respond to that, I, I definitely see what you guys are saying. Yes, I, I agree. It's quite conventional. But I do think there's, you mentioned Saul, the, the father who won't listen, right? I do think like that character, for example, he works quite well. I, th- I think he's not just put in there as an obstacle to the plot, right? Because that's often the problem with those kind of stories. And I think maybe it's the voice acting. I think the writing is just smart enough to make all of those familiar tropes work well for me and obviously support the, yeah, the, the amazing animation. I think the film is quite smart about its historical context. The way it depicts uh, this opposition between Cromwell, which again, not named, he's just named the Lord Protector, but if you know your history, you know that's him, uh, and his almost fanatic Catholicism, or Christianity, rather, and the way it's opposed to the paganism, which is obviously very linked to that, all, the, all of that folklore. I think that's actually uh, relatively smartly done, even though he's obviously a villain. There's kind of this recognition that the world that is that this magical world, it is dying, it is disappearing, and that's not something you can really stop. I, th- I think the film has a sadness in it that is not that common for animated films. So I think that, that it does have strength uh, narratively for me as well. Moving on to Tom, what is your fifth favorite film of 2020? So my fifth favorite film of 2020 is Minari. Now, Minari is a charming and understated drama that uses simple yet exquisite storytelling to paint a vivid picture of life for a humble Korean family who moved to Arkansas to start a farm during the 1980s. Chasing the American dream is at the heart of this timeless story, and as you would expect, there are a few hurdles on the way that test the Stoic family, not least the telling cultural gap between the traditional values of the family's grandma and the playful nature of her two adorable grandchildren. Director Lee Isaac Chung frames the drama with elegant compositions that capture the magic of a livelihood revolving around farming, and the beautiful scenes of nature are often spellbinding. The story told is nothing new, though it's delivered in such an accomplished manner that it is easy to overlook this aspect, as you become lost in a brilliantly refined picture that tangles with your emotions and tugs at your heartstrings. So I really did like Minari, not as much as Tom, but I do think it's a very solid film. It portrays, you know, five characters who come across as a genuine down-to-earth family and some of the difficulties that they experience along the way. The strongest aspect of the film for me is the relationship between the son and the grandmother, or at least that's what stayed in my mind the most in the months since watching it and the actress who won the oscar for playing the role she's fantastic in it she's very feisty her interactions with the grandson are just like excellent and the way you know she um accidentally embarrasses him in public you know ding dong doesn't work or whatever the line was was great uh it's also really nice the way that he comes to accept the grandmother after having so much friction towards her and not wanting her to be there in the first place. Although for me, that came very suddenly. I would have liked it to be a more gradual thing, more building towards, you know, him going from wanting to try and choke her on some sort of drink or whatever, or to I'm um, actually coming to love her as a grandmother. I'd wa- I really wanted something a bit more gradual with that, whereas it seemed very sudden. But still, the interactions between those characters are really at the heart of the film for me, although I know a lot of it's also about Stephen Ewan's performance and 
also about you know him trying to like grow and like farm his own crops but um yeah they're definitely a very solid film yeah once again i'm in a very similar uh place as well which is that i think it's a very well made film just once again it's very well acted film it's a strong drama but i just didn't think it quite reached greatness uh, so it's just it has all the elements of being a very good film it just doesn't pack that final strong uh, punch at, at least for me minari is a film that's i'm not sure why but i expected it to be a feel-good film and it has some aspects of that especially early on and i think the, maybe i got that impression because of what Saul talked about with the relation of the grandson with the grandmother, which has a lot of, of comedy. Uh, but it's actually a bit more complex than that. And I ended up being much more interested in the parents, really, than than that relationship with which most people have bloomed onto. I think Stephen Yeun, in particular, gives a, a great performance. Uh, in the end, I, I guess I agree with all of you that it's a good film, not necessarily one I think quite reaches greatness, but definitely a, a well-made, well-written film, and, and especially well-acted by Stephen Young. I absolutely agree, and by Yoon Yoo Young, who plays the grandmother as well. I, I think that these two performances are clearly uh, standouts in this film, and it, it does have a lot of great emotion there. I, I think it's just, it, it strikes me just as a little bit slight, but it does tie into some societal critique and some part of the immigrant experience but but it doesn't tie that closely to it like there's some really subtle for instance uh, critiques of economics but you have to have literally been in america in the 80s to feel those minor things there it, it could have been so much more perhaps the most interesting thing about uh minari is that i think about almost half of it is in korean which is uh quite intriguing for an american-based film and a quite bold choice and that's something that certainly elevates it in the discourse but just as a general narrative uh it, it is just like i said a very very good film yeah i guess it's kind of a trend because we got was it last year i think we got the farewell basically an american film but with Half of it in in Mandarin, and it caused all of those controversies. Both both films did, uh, with being classified as foreign films for some award ceremonies because they just look at language. Anyway, yeah, I, I agree that it is an interesting aspect of the film, right? A good way to look at immigrant populations in a country like the U.S. really allowing us to see them domestically and to see how language is a huge part of what being uh, an immigrant or son or daughter of an immigrant. Definitely. It's encouraging to see films that share multiple languages for, you know, large parts of the runtime. And I agree with Chris that Minari could be seen as, as slight with regards to the social commentary it offers. But I suppose it's a, it's a simple tale about a family who, you know, they're hoping for a simple life. And I don't feel that it necessarily needs that complexity. It allows the drama to be centre stage and... As most of my co-hosts have mentioned, the interplay between the, the five main characters is brilliant, and, and that's what really grabbed me. And, uh, you know, I found it a, a great, really heartwarming film. So, Saul, what is your fifth favourite film of the year? Anybody who knows me knows that I love time loop films, from Groundhog Day to Happy Death Day to the recent Boss Level. So I pretty much knew that I was going to love my number five of 2020 before even sitting down to watch it. But even so, I can say that Palm Springs really impressed me. 
So Palm Springs involves a wedding guest who is stuck in a time loop and he's been stuck in it for ages and his life is suddenly shaken up when he inadvertently brings a young woman into his time loop. While there are many time loop films out there, this one tries something different by having its protagonist start off in the middle of the loop. That said, you know, since then I actually have seen boss leveling starts off in the middle of the loop also, but generally the characters don't start off in the middle of the time loop. The other thing which is very different about Palm Springs is having multiple persons in the same loop. It is something that's been done before. There's a Canadian film called Repeaters, and there's also a film called A Day from South Korea, which I would highly recommend. But whereas A Day is structured as a beat-the-clock thriller with the two people trying to work on gathering information to stop an accident, and Repeaters is all about the time loop victims representing different spectrums of morality, in Palm Springs, it's actually about the characters having fun and having a good time while growing, changing, and learning a little bit more of each other while the world around them remains the same. Just like Sol, I'm an absolute sucker for films that involve time loops. So I was very excited to see Palm Springs, having heard a lot about it, and it didn't disappoint at all. It was my uh, number eight pick of the year, so it narrowly missed uh, being in my top five and i really enjoyed that it started out in the middle of the the time loop as, as sol mentioned it's quite a, a novel idea i know boss level's done it and there's others but at the time i saw palm springs it was quite new to me that and it really struck a chord with me i really like the mystical elements surrounding the the time loop concept i think they work really well the the fantasy side of it there's some nice little touches that uh, add a bit of depth to the film there. And it, it basically just hits all the right notes as a breezy, entertaining comedy. It's so fun, it's easy to watch. And the nature of time loop films means that there's things that you won't pick up on the first time, but you will appreciate as you watch it again and again. So just like Groundhog Day, I can see myself coming back to this one time and time again. And I know that I'm always going to have a fun time with it. Also a thing I, I liked a lot, it was my number 10, and one of the films I mentioned being higher on Soul's list. I guess I'm not as well-versed as you guys are in the time loop films, so my comparison is the obvious one, Groundhog Day, and I think you see what adding other characters that have more agency really does to the film. It just works so much better as a romantic comedy uh, because of that. And I think the two leads are very charismatic. I love, obviously, Andy Samberg is, is very funny, but I love Christine Migliotti, who I knew from How I Met Your Mother, of all things. She didn't get a great role in that, but she was already great, and it, I love to see her get a, a film where she yeah, she gets to be super charming and, and super funny. And yes, yeah, just overall a great time. And there are a few films on your list so that have this uh, pop style, and when it's done well, that, that kind of style, it, it's just such a pleasure to be in. And I think Palm Springs is, is a great example of that. Okay, thanks, guys. It's really great to hear the um, feedback from you about Palm Springs because I know my taste in film doesn't always have an overlap with everybody else. And uh, it's really great to see the guys were on board with this. I, I am very well-versed in time loop films. I remember I was talking to Tom about it and I'd mentioned some like The Egyptian, A Thousand Congratulations and films that he hadn't even heard of. So I've seen a lot of them, 
uh, double digits worth at least. And yeah, Palm Springs definitely between starting in the middle of the time loop and having the multiple characters just ups the ante so much and different things that have been done before. And like you guys have mentioned, actually just makes for a really great romantic comedy. I'm not really a rom-com guy, but this one really worked. And I agree thoroughly about the performances. Uh, both the leads did an excellent job in the film. I think it's also worth mentioning at this stage because myself and Sol, so we're excited by the prospect of, of time loop films that we are looking to do a podcast episode on it in the future so that's one to look out for and by that time i might even have seen palm springs <laughs> so my number five of 2020 could also be described as well no i can't describe it as a time loop never mind it's nothing to do with that but it's uh, the metamorphosis of birch by katarina vasconcelos which weaves memories stories, letters, and images into a visually poetic family saga so colorful and alive that it's impossible to not become entirely mesmerized. It's just incredible how it creates such a powerful, dreamlike and hypnotizing fabric that carves out an almost unvisited area in cinema, a true borderland between documentary filmmaking and just personal expression. It's not so much that it tests the limit of documentation and fiction slash recreation as it just rarely attempts the latter at all. Stories are told or read from diaries, letters, or real people, even the director herself. And yet, what we are shown is first and foremost representations of what we are told, as it creates a web of remembrances, echoes, secrets, longings, and connections, including a self-assessment. It leaves us with more than the feeling of any kind of traditional essay film. It's just a unique, visually incredible slice of cinema that's unlike almost anything else that I've seen. I really liked uh, The Metamorphosis of Birds. It's, a, as you said, a very poetic film, visually quite striking. Uh, I would say I enjoyed the first part of it, which is very has more focus uh, for me on this story of her, of the filmmaker's family. I, I really enjoyed the, the way uh, Katarina Vasconcelos uh, used the sea, because this film is in some ways all about time. Right? You mentioned jokingly that it kind of has a tie-in with, with Palm Springs early on. But yeah, it, it does. Yeah, it is about the passage of time, but mortality in, in some ways. And the sea is just such a, a powerful symbol of that, a powerful of something that is eternal and always moving at the same time. And I think she uses that very smartly and crafts some beautiful images out of that. I do think the film loses a bit uh, as it gets more into the maybe the meta nature of it, the cross between documentary and fiction that you love so much, Chris. Maybe that didn't work quite as well for me, but yes, overall, it's, yeah, a poem and film and, and um, one I, I liked a lot. The Metamorphosis of Birds didn't really work for me, sadly. The combination of documentary and art house left me cold. There were some nice images, but rather than drawing me in, the narrative felt alienating. I couldn't connect with the story at all, despite my best efforts. It felt too personal and yet somehow quite distant at the same time. Um, I don't want to deter people from watching it because obviously Chris and Matteo are, are great fans of it. But if you're not specifically into art house cinema, 
I think this might be quite a challenging viewing experience. Yeah, I would agree totally with Tom about it being a challenging film. Uh, it was interesting that when Chris said earlier that it would be impossible not to be mesmerised by it. And I'd say, you know, early on, I'd agree with that. It was definitely very captivating when I sat down to watch and he had all these extreme close-ups and the film was refusing to cut away to medium shots. Definitely very striking the way it was put together. But, you know, as the film went on, I guess I just got, you know, very tired of it. Um, like Tom said, it's a bit alienating. I couldn't really find myself grasping into it and just the mixture of, you know, fiction and documentary and where does it start and where does it end i sort of like found myself getting lost along the way the images were great especially the ones of the ocean you've got also some fast forwarded shots of flowers blooming which um always looks lovely whenever it's captured on film but yeah i agree a lot with what mature said that it starts off really well the first part of it's pretty good but then it's sort of for me at least it loses its way as it goes along and by the end of it i was just like no this film unfortunately wasn't for me well that's actually pretty good so i think we have adequately informed our listeners of who will actually like this so if you like strong visuals and you know a unique poetic essence you will at least enjoy the first uh, the first half or first portion of the film and then if you're not that into art house you're not that into poetry or films that kind of just play around with the cinematic language you may drop out as it goes along so that's a pretty good setup and just a slight spoiler for later i think my number four film will be even worse for people who are not necessarily into art house films so i can just drop that little nugget of information right there uh, before we move on to our number four picks of 2020 starting once again with Mathieu. Yeah, so my number four is David Fincher's Mank, a film that I think has suffered from being judged upon the altar of Citizen Kane and more generally of being seen as the film about who wrote uh, Citizen Kane. That obviously is a huge part of the plot, but the question of authorship between Herman Mankiewicz and Orson Welles is really not the film's main concern, I think. It's more about Mankiewicz as this man who has a realization that he has spent his whole life distancing himself from the world by being this cynical and funny observer sitting on the sidelines in places like William Hirsch's mansion and amusing himself of the pretensions of big stars and basically making a living off that. The flashback structure of the film is not just there to mimic Citizen Kane, though obviously that's a plus, it's more to frame it as the work of someone who is reflecting on the merits of taking action, of trying to uh, directly influence the world around you. People like Kane and William Hurst and Orson Welles, for that matter, are the kind of people who make history, right? They're just these big personalities that are unavoidable. They, they, they shape the room around them. And people like Herman Mankiewicz are often the ones who write it from the corner. And that position can be very comfortable. But I think part of the question that Mank asks is, is it productive? Is it helpful? And how does it feel to be in that role? That's why so much of the film is spent on the 1934 uh, California election for governor, a moment where Mankiewicz had to face the compromise of his position in Hollywood, an industry that represents everything he despises and loves to mock, but is also truly the place he belongs in. And so you have this opposition between uh, the political tendencies of Hollywood and his own. And that is all related to the film that Citizen Kane is. 
but it's also building this completely independent character study that's also just a delightfully written dive into 30s Hollywood and features a particularly great performance by Amanda Seyfried as Marion Davies uh, because I haven't talked about that but the relationship between Meg and Davies is another complex aspect of this all and their scenes together are both very entertaining uh, just the dialogue is very sharply written and Fincher directed quite well but it's also deeply revealing about both of their understanding of what their place in the world is and specifically in this context of, of Hollywood. Fincher is having fun with the sheer audacity of making a film that is literally in Orson Welles' shadow by putting in cigarette burns and, and all of that stuff, and an amusing immersion in the golden age of Hollywood. But it, mainly for me, he's offering us a thoughtful drama on this character of a writer who's perpetually on the sidelines of the so-called great men, and, and that's what I love about the film, the emotional complexity of, of those characters. I think for me, almost everything in this film worked extremely well, except the thing you bring out now, the, this, this emotional uh, connection to the characters and this stronger, greater hold and this stronger focus on Herman Mankiewicz. I mean, I think it's a beautiful looking film. There's many just fantastic shots in it and uh, it's clear just how much David Fincher enjoyed shooting in black and white. And I also think it is a film that's incredibly good if you're a character actor. I mean, you mentioned Amanda Seyfried, who is kind of like a, uh, not quite a co-lead, but has a really large, meaty role in it. But there's so many uh, fun side characters here, like uh, an actor I haven't really paid any attention to before, Arliss Howard, who plays Louis B. Mayer and is just fantastic in it. He's just, you know, steals the spotlight and there's so much essentially action when he speaks, so much focus. Not to mention Charles Dance as William Randall first himself, who is also just incredible to watch and has so many great lines. So I think the drunken exchanges are just spot on. I think where it uh, loses itself a little bit is just this balance in also trying to be a great drama because it's balancing so many stories and focuses at the same time that it never quite comes together as this big whole. But it's a really good film. It's thoroughly entertaining. There's lots of great performances in it and Gary Oldman is definitely great. So it's just a really strong film that I can absolutely recommend. Yeah, unfortunately, I need to be a dissenting voice on Mank. With that said, though, what Mature mentioned earlier on about the film getting some detraction because of comparisons to Citizen Kane, well, with it being how I approach films and reading up as little about them as possible, it was my assumption that the movie was going to be about principally the writing of Citizen Kane, and therefore, I actually made it a point to re-watch Citizen Kane immediately before sitting down and watching Mank, which in retrospect is probably the worst thing I could have possibly have done. So I spent the whole of Mank sitting down and trying to draw comparisons between Ka uh, Citizen Kane and the movie Mank, which I probably shouldn't have done. So I was trying to look for like similarities between you know the stories of it and being about larger-than-life characters looking for love and the similarities aren't really there. And that's probably because the movie Mank isn't really about the writing of Citizen Kane, it's just a subplot. But then the film was marketed as about being about the writing of Citizen Kane, so 
It's all a bit of a tricky one, but you know, my experience of the film, I did find it quite, you know, frustrating because I was looking for it to be about Citizen Kane and it wasn't. And I guess the whole Hollywood backstory and the ins and outs wasn't too interesting for me, I guess. Um, uh, other than, you know, a memorable part where somebody calls for Mank in the bathroom or whatever, they're looking for uh, Joseph L. Mankiewicz, not uh, Herman Mankiewicz, um, so the director of All About Eve instead. But, you know, other than a couple of things like that, it didn't really do much for me. The visuals, I mean, black and white always looks great, but I was really hoping for more visuals that actually reference Citizen Kane. So I guess I just overall found the film a thorough disappointment, and Manx probably actually my least favourite David Fincher film. That said, I did enter it with the wrong mindset. I'm coming in somewhere close to Sol on my reaction to Manx. I have to put a disclaimer out there first that. I'm not a fan of Citizen Kane. Um, I've only seen it the once when I was a young, relatively inexperienced viewer and perhaps not in the right frame of mind to appreciate the groundbreaking techniques. I was more focused on the story at that stage in my viewing and it didn't grab me at all. I've got to say that Mank treads similar ground in that respect. Uh, I wasn't particularly a fan of the story, but I could appreciate the approach and the techniques used by Fincher to make this very beautiful film. I mean, 1930s Hollywood looks absolutely stunning. The lavish costumes and set designs act as a striking backdrop. And some of the acting is just sublime. Gary Oldman is always excellent. And deservedly, he was nominated for the Oscar. But I have to say that that the right person won the Oscar in this case, which we'll we'll get to uh, later on in the episode. So I can certainly appreciate that that Mank is a well-made, well-executed film, though I wouldn't say I particularly enjoyed it as such. Yeah, so this is why I I really emphasised the character and political aspect of it, because I know that most people did not really care for that. I don't don't really get why, but (laughs) to each his own. Uh, But yes, I I do agree with, with what Chris said about the big quality of it is also how fun it is, right? How it's this dive into this world of 30s Hollywood, which we, at least uh, people who care about film, have at least some uh, familiarity with. And definitely agree with um, how strong the cast is across the board, and especially Charles Dance. Yes, I, I didn't mention him, but he is having a lot of fun playing William Hurst and uh, a standout as well. Well, Tom, what is your fourth favorite film of 2020? My fourth favorite film of 2020 is one that also appears in Soul's top five so we'll skip it for now and get into that a bit later in the episode oh exciting and moving on to Soul, what is your number four of the year the film that i've selected as my number four of 2020 is one that i knew almost nothing about before sitting down to watch it the IMDb banner ads cleverly worked, though, because there was an Amazon Prime original. And after receiving a Golden Globe nomination for Best Comedy Actress, I decided to finally give it a go. And after watching it, I actually altered my Globe predictions on Gold Derby, and I successfully managed to predict Rosamund Pike winning the Golden Globe. Deservedly, too, because I think it's a career best performance for her, and I don't generally like her as an actress. The film that I'm talking about is, of course, I Care A Lot. That's the name of the film. I mean, I do care a lot, but I care a lot's the name of the film. In the film, Pike plays a ruthless, court-appointed legal guardian 
who is more keen on profiteering off her clients than catering for them and caring for them. And her life starts spiraling out of control after she doesn't properly vet one of her latest victims. While the film begins as a very dark comedy, it gradually becomes more of a thriller as she finds herself matching wits with someone who is just as ruthless and more dangerous than herself. And paid by Peter Dinklage, he absolutely excels opposite Pike. There's also great support from Diane Weist as Pike's latest victim who enjoys telling her that she's screwed and ends up setting her on edge. I don't want to spoil the film too much, but I absolutely dug it as a tale of twisted American dreams and what it takes to be successful. The film has faced a bit of a backlash in recent months. I'm not sure what it is. I don't know if there's resentment over Pike winning the Golden Globe over Maria Baklova. But for everything that I've said and more, including the representation of lesbianism on screen with it being a complete non-issue, the representation of a little person on screen with again being a complete non-issue, I just think there's a lot that really works in the film and I think it's a great motion picture. I just had to say, I really, really enjoyed I care a lot. I mean, yet again, I'm going to say not quite great, but it's just so good. It's deliciously mean and slick. This is the film that just loves being itself. It enjoys all the darkness. It, it, it revels in, in the mean-spiritness of the characters and the abuses of the system because it's just this stark satire of abuses against the elderly and uh, a for-profit system in the US just run amok and left to sociopaths. It's it's just wonderful to watch. It's a lot of fun. My only critique, and it, it's just a very small critique because there's so many great lines and so much strong humor there is that I would just like that satire edge to go one step up, to just embrace it 100% because it's almost there. It's almost at that breaking point of just absolute meta insanity, but it just stops just short, uh, keeping itself a little bit more grounded. Perhaps that's better for, for most regular audiences. And I just wanted to, you know, go a specific way where I tend to enjoy films more, but it's just a great fun watch. So dark, so mean spirited. And I think anyone who loves mean spirited, uh, dark satires that just revel in it and loves doing what they're doing will love this. I also had a really great time with I Care A Lot. It's the kind of film that leaves you grinning throughout most of its runtime. It's, as Chris said, it's deliciously dark, very twisted nature. And there's some excellent performances from a really great cast. One thing that did disappoint me slightly was that I don't feel we saw enough of Diane Weist's brilliant character. I wanted to see more of her. She was excellent as the strong, defiant matriarch who is certain that her sons will come and, and rescue her from the horrible position that, that she finds herself in. But um, it, it's got a brilliant soundtrack and it's a very unpredictable ride. Some brilliantly written characters and I had a, a thoroughly good time with it. So I'm going to be the, the dissenting voice on I Care A Lot. I'll mention first that aesthetically I think the film is very successful. I think it has that, that visually pop style, right? And um, with the soundtrack and everything, and all of that works quite well, is very fun. But I think something you mentioned, Chris, is, is really highlights the problem I have with it. Uh, you mentioned it's almost there at being a satire. And so 
it's trying to yeah it's it, have, it, have, it, have its cake and eat it too trying to in some ways be with her but also condemning her and that balance to me is completely off and that that's why the thing just doesn't work for me uh, even though I, I definitely see it's it's quality yeah it's interesting discussion to make about i care a lot as a satire i think that yeah the, the film does definitely walk a bit of a line there between whether it's totally with her or condemning her and I would probably agree that the balance could be slightly more towards being with her because it does, you know, tinker off the edge. I think the ending and what happens to her at the end, I don't think really goes with the rest of the film and the way the film's going in terms of, you know, promote promoting or maybe not, if not quite supporting or whatever, you know, sort of like showing off how different people might realise their own American dreams. So, yeah, look, I sort of understand that, but look, that didn't really ruin it for me because uh, the film isn't just staying in there as, you know, a dark comedy. It's not just that. I guess for me, it graduates from a dark comedy into a survivalist sort of thriller with the two personalities clashing against, clashing against each other. But it's a tricky balance to make. And I guess um, sort of maybe why I like Rosamund Pike in the role because I don't like her as an actress. I have no idea what it is about her. But from Die Another Day up until uh, in, through until like Gone Girl, I thought she was the worst part of Gone Girl. But I guess I yeah really liked her in I Care a lot maybe because I don't find her a particularly sympathetic actress to begin off with. I've never found her one who gives like particularly you know in depth performances. I've always found her, I guess a little bit shallow. It sort of like worked for me, but um, yeah, I guess for somebody who's more into Rosamund Pike as an actress, you know, that might not quite be the right balance. Um, I, I do love the fact that Tom mentioned the uh, soundtrack. I think the soundtrack is awesome, and Macho mentioned that also briefly. And the color scheme has an amazing color scheme. Also, I do agree also with what Tom said that you could have more of Diane Weiss' character in there because she's excellent and also devastated. There was no Oscar buzz for her. But uh, yeah, no, just a, a really interesting motion picture. Maybe you're onto something with Rosamund Pike because I'm a big fan of her in Gone Girl. So maybe there's a, a spectrum and we're on opposite sides of the Rosamund Pike spectrum. <laughs> And I guess uh, this takes us to uh, my number four, which is a film I almost feel like I need to issue some kind of content warning for. As, yes, Malmkrog or Manor House by Christy Puyo is 201 minutes long. And it, well, depending on your sensibilities, it threatens or promises non-stop philosophy and theology on screen. I mean, it, it's sparse in setting and exposition. The action takes place almost entirely within and outside a large estate. The titler Manor House. As the reciting couple and their guests, all members of the ruling class, enjoy an elaborate Christmas dinner. Throughout the evening, they engage in in-depth discussions of Christianity, war, politics, morals, enlightenment, oh, and of course, good and evil. One thing that is slowly intriguing here is just the quiet craft of uh, Christy Puyo. Uh, he varies the style in each scene. It's broken down into 
six chapters and each of them have very different ritual tones. They, they vary from, you know, f- for instance, being composed entirely of intimate close-ups or being shot from afar, characters being obscured, and so many other small twists to keep the visual tension there. While the philosophical tension also grows because it's a film with so much interpretation, you don't know what its actual goal is. Each character has their own motivations. And it's really just like looking into onto the faces of the old world, a world that we know disappeared. It's a dense film, probably a pretty difficult film, uh, but it's also for those who can enjoy it, thoroughly immersive. Uh, you might even need to be in the right mindset here, but just this kind of immersive philosophical experience, almost like a bit of... Uh, dinner with Andrew, but with very different atmosphere uh, and tone, can just be all encompassing and engrossing. You know, despite the fact that our protagonists are often being seated or standing still, Manor House can only be described as an active film. Now, perhaps some of my co-hosts will disagree with this, but I, I really don't see a, a contradiction here because it, it actively asks you to engage in what you see, to make judgments and assessments, and to try to reach your own conclusions and interpretations. I mean, if this sounds like your type of film, I, I cannot recommend it enough. But if it does not sound like your kind of film, you... you should probably avoid it unless you have some kind of masochistic uh, intentions there because anyone who's not into this kind of cinema will most likely not enjoy themselves. So Mam Krog is currently streaming on movie. And when Chris mentioned that it was in his top five for the year, I thought, you know, why not? I'll sit down and watch it. It's in the uh, Cahiers du Cinema top 10 of the year so it's an official check on icm doesn't sound too bad could be interesting so you know i sat down and i got up to the 40 minute mark and all the characters were doing was standing around and talking which you know for the first you know 10 or 20 minutes it's like yeah, this is pretty edgy we're just gonna have been characters standing around talking and you know kept going on kept going on got to about 40 minutes in i looked it up online and yeah not film apparently doesn't change from there i'm just like no life is too short for this so i decided to stop watching mom Krog at the 40 minute mark and i usually have a 20 minute rule that if i get 20 minutes in, i finish the film but no life was too short to finish it and the film is going to haunt me now because i don't know how many of them I don't know how many of our listeners have a movie account, but in my movie account, when I go and log in, it comes up as continue watching Malmkrog every single time. It keeps recommending that I continue watching it. I'm like, no, I want to get rid of this. And I can't. Like, I, there must be some way, but watching uh, it. maybe if any of our listeners know, they can tell me, but I can't remove it from the continue watching row until it expires from movie. So I'm just planning it finally gets off movie so I can stop being horny by this film that I absolutely hated. So uh, I'm sorry, Chris, that's my piece said and done about it. I'm very jealous that Sol was able to turn Malmkrog off because it was a long three and a half hours 
and I didn't turn it off because I'm stubborn and once I started watching a film I have to see it through to the end regardless of how I'm finding it because you never know a film may improve uh, towards the end something else may happen so I'm always willing to to give it that chance I have to say there are some positives there's good set design costumes and some relatively serviceable acting but other than that I found it to be a tough endurance test um, it's not for me, but as as Chris says, it's it's clearly a divisive film, and if you are into that kind of thing, then there is a high chance you're going to have a good time with it. So I want to apologize to Chris for not having watched uh, Mamkrog because I feel like I could have supported him on this. It feels like a film that I could have liked uh, maybe more than Tom and Sol. And so yeah, various uh, reasons that why I didn't get to it. Obviously, the runtime is a factor there. But yes, still, uh, I, I could have supported you, but you are alone because of my failings. So I'm sorry, Chris. No worries about it. And uh, yeah, we got through it and uh, we're still alive. And uh, yeah, so all may eventually see it if it never expires. Maybe the pain of seeing that uh, reminder will just be too strong. It might eventually push me over the edge and make me finish it, but um, I'm like, oh, you know, I hope it expires before I get that desperate. Yeah, it's not going to be a positive result. Okay. <laughs> well, with that, we're on to our number threes. And Matthew, you can uh, once again kick us off. All right. So my number three is a French documentary titled Un pays qui se tient sage, or The Monopoly of Violence for its international title. Uh, it's a documentary that's not so much about the Gilets jaunes or Yellow Vests uh, riots that took place in France in 2018 and 18, as it is about what it means to use violence in a democracy. The international title is actually quite a good one. Uh, it refers to a concept developed by sociologist Max Weber in the early 20th century, and that is the idea that an essential characteristic of the modern state is that it has the monopoly of legitimate violence, meaning all violence not committed by the state is illegitimate. David Dufresne, the, the filmmaker, is mostly going for a pretty typical talking heads approach with two interesting touches here. One of them is that he is often confronting uh, the people he's interviewing with images of the riots projected on the big screen, which gets particularly interesting when the people in question were involved in them on one side or the other. Um, but the other thing that's, that's quite unique, I think, to this film, at least I hadn't seen before, is that uh, none of the interviewees are identified during the film. You can obviously guess pretty easily that someone is a cop or an academic or a member of the Gilets Jaunes based on what they're saying, but the choice not to have it on screen feels very much pointed. A kind of democratic approach to the talking heads idea that feels... Yeah, generally novel to me. And I think it's really appropriate to this subject matter. He is exploring how our modern democracies work and how they have to compromise themselves by this use of violence. He ends up by covering his bases at the end, by showing you the people and this time telling you exactly who they are. But it still feels like a pretty bold choice. And it's in line with how smart and how level-headed uh, this documentary is. Though it's pretty clear that Dufresne does not take a very kind view on some of the choices made by the French government to fight the riots, it's not a piece of agitprop. It's a genuine attempt to reflect on the questions it raises in how a democracy deals with political violence, especially one whose origin story is deeply rooted in violence. I mean, most of them are, but our national anthem is a war song, 
And the notion of a right to revolt is part of our Republican history, right? It's, it's the same for the US and for many uh, democratic countries. And this, this documentary doesn't offer easy solutions or condemnations. It's just generally asking questions in ways that feel all the more powerful because of the way uh, that Dufresne frames them. And I guess I'll add that the the French title is a little more ironic as opposed to the uh, international title, which is very descriptive. Uh, un pays qui soutient sage is, is like a country that is quiet, right? And it refers to an incident that was filmed during the riots, uh, but it has a little more of a political edge to it. But but still, I, I think what I really appreciate in this film is how level-headed and open-minded it is in in exploring those those issues. Uh, I think that what Mathieu uh, talked about here in terms of its uh, democratic voice and not having introductions to the characters and having this kind of internal dialogue about France makes it a little bit more difficult for people outside of France uh, to necessarily get each aspect of it. Because I felt that, you know, as someone who you know, I know about these clashes, but I don't have the in-depth knowledge to really be immersed in it. And it feels like you should have even more knowledge and even more backstory. He almost lived through it, like the French did, to truly get what the film is trying to do. Because it feels a little bit more abstract when you're watching it from afar. It's good. It's uh, intriguing. There's some really striking interviews. But just the fact that, you know, the interviewees are not introduced until the end, which is a very nice poetic touch when they do that. It does make you feel a little bit lost. It feels like you don't get the introduction to the events that you might want. So it just does feel like a really internal film that, you know, doesn't take the time to explain all of the aspects of what happened. You kind of have to know more about it already. So that would be my main warning to uh, foreigners watching the film. But you can absolutely get something out of it regardless because the interviews are strong. There are striking stories. There are br There's brutal footage. It's a very strong uh, and well-made film. But there may be some issues if you're not very immersed with these recent events. I would agree with Chris there. It's a very intriguing documentary, though I wish it explored more surrounding the background of the events building up to the riots in France. I understand that it wasn't necessary for the filmmakers to do that to get their point across, but I would have liked to have learned more about the situation building up to it, and that would have perhaps enhanced my appreciation of the film. Um, I still thought it was a neat idea to get members of the two opposing sides to come face to face and get a chance to speak to each other. So even though um, it didn't resonate with me particularly, it was still a, an interesting documentary. Yeah, I think that choice not to contextualize that much is both because it's not necessary for a French audience, but also, yeah, because it's, it's not the Dufresne's point. But I can see definitely how it detracts from, from the experience. Uh, but yeah, basically the, the point of the film applies to any riots, right, to the Black Lives Matter riots, just as well as, as it does to the Gilets Jaunes. It's just uh, kind of the excuse for the, reflec the reflection that he's having uh, with his interviews. But yes, I, I definitely see how it can be disorienting not to know the context as well, and, and the film does not help you that much. And on to Tom, what is your number three favorite film of 2020? So my number three film of 2020 is Rent-A-Pal. Now, in Rent-A-Pal, the, the psychological impact of being a full-time carer for a loved one is the stepping stone for a powerful and traumatic thriller. A lonely bachelor 
known as David, is fighting off depression and loneliness while struggling to take care of his housebound mother, and he tries to find love through a video dating service. Whilst doing so, he stumbles upon a strange VHS that offers companionship, but this tape slowly takes over David's life as the line between reality and his imagination begin to blur. Now, Rent-A-Pal is an imaginative and utterly captivating slow burn thriller that takes time to build up a sympathetic characterization of David with a remarkable performance from Brian Landis in the lead role. There's humour throughout to alleviate the feeling of despair and hopelessness that invades David's life. And this allows us to warm to David and empathise with his plight. A menacing turn from Will Wheaton as Andy, the host of the VHS tape which becomes such a huge part of David's life, is the perfect counterpoint to David's introverted nature. And their interplay feels so natural that at times it's easy to forget that Andy is just a video recording. There's a lot to unpack in Rent-A-Pal. Its social commentary is smart and affecting, and the elements of horror towards the end of the picture really hit hard. This is an incredibly original and striking picture, and it should be essential viewing for anyone who relishes dark and disturbing dramas. So finally, here's a nominee from the uh, from one of the other hosts that I just love, and thank you so much for recommending it to me, Tom. I mean, this is... It's witty, it's clever, and, and even based on a real story in a way, there actually was a Rent-A-Friend videotape back in the day, which was so amazing to discover. But the way that Rent-A-Pal is set up is so creative. And the fact that it also ties in the use of VHS and the way it deteriorates and, you know, its time and place, it has this kind of uh, bleakly realistic retro dark com- comedic mind trip going for it. Uh, li- like you said, Will Wheaton is absolutely fantastic here. And it, just the, f- the way that David essentially just watches this tape and then slowly starts to engage in the conversations with Will Wheaton to the point that, you know, he's stopping the tape, starting the tape, timing, exact timing of when it's meant to answer based on the actual pauses within the tape. You, you, you get into that dynamic relationship of actually becoming friends in a way with a VHS tape. And you can also see what happens when that VHS tape starts to deteriorate and have glitches. I, I just think it's such a fun film. It's such a darkly comedic, fun comedy, horror thriller. And I, I just, essentially everything here works so incredibly well, that except and this is the one place where I would disagree a little with with Tom, uh, the ending. I think the ending is a little bit too simple, a little bit too conventional, because everything up until that point was so creative. You had that unique relationship building, that unique relationship with the VHS, uh, and then suddenly you get a fairly simple and easy conclusion that clears things up. Though there is also a post-credit scene that's, that's quite hilarious. So, highly recommended to everyone. Uh, it, it just checks all of the boxes. I just think it's it, it's a really fun, great watch. I also absolutely loved rent And that's coming as somebody who has Videodrome as his number one film. I thought there was a really strong Videodrome vibe throughout it because it's got a similar philosophy, I guess, with the relationship that we develop to what we watch. So, I mean, there's a striking image of him hugging the television set in a darkened room, which, of course, brings to mind that um, 
iconic shot of, you know, James Woods going in and kissing his television set in Videodrome. And the interactions between uh, Will Wheaton and the protagonist also brought to mind for me Brian Oblivion's direct addressing of Max Wren on the videotape and sort of like having that conversation with someone. And it's got that similar vibe to Videodrome where you're not sure how much of it's really happening, how much of it's, I guess, video hallucination to use Cronenberg top terminology. But uh, yeah, the whole thing's incredibly interesting. I do agree with Chris that the ending was slightly unsatisfying to me, but more because I wanted the film to you know, make a bit clearer about whether it's all in his mind or whether it's happening in real life and the film doesn't want to go down that pathway. Aside from the video drone touches, what I really liked about it was the whole red tape of the that goes along with the video dating system that they're meant to be there to support and help their clients but there's so many things in place or whatever with trying to get like get the number and get the matches they're actually not helping out their clients at all so i thought the irony of that was all quite interesting i thought that got well tapped into with the way that things went i feel very mixed about winterpal i really enjoyed it as a dark comedy and that's actually uh, had this, this very interesting character and very well well played by um, the main actor Brian Landis Falkins. Uh, and Will Wheaton is really fun and really playing off his persona. As someone who plays a lot of board games, I'm familiar with his YouTube show. I don't know if you know about it, Tabletop. And there's a lot of, of this vibe. I mean, they do play your game in, in this. Uh, I really enjoyed this this meta aspect. And again, as a dark comedy, I think I, I, I was really liking this film. But I think the switch to thriller and horror doesn't work for me at all. Uh, and to me, it really loses sight of the characters. And especially there's a, well, the main character, but there's also a, a female character that I think is really used just as a prop uh, by this film in a way that I, I, I don't like. I think it has a lot of, of great qualities. Again, yeah, basically the, the first two thirds of the film are, are quite good. Uh, but yeah, just the whole package for me did not quite work. So I, yeah, I'm, I'm mixed on it. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that, like you said, uh, the love interest, if you will, it's a very, it's a just very thin character that's mainly there as a prop to drive some of the things towards the conclusion. And I do also agree that the horror element is not as strong as the more darkly comedic element, though the unease is there the entire time. And yeah, regarding we Leighton to have also seen the tabletop, it's, it's really fun if you enjoy uh, board games. And part of the, what's so great about his performance in this film is just the fact that it's so campy and awkward, and it's meant to be campy and awkward. This is like the most awkward, cheerful, and fake friend you could possibly get. And again, the best part of this film is really just having our lead character, David, slowly go from this is, you know, ridiculous and fake to developing a relationship with this rent-a-pal. And how those conversations change and how they can have different uh, conversations with the exact same replies from Will Wheaton because he is literally just a videotape. And the fact that those conversations become more and more different and more and more creepy and that you can even start early on to think, okay, what will these replies and responses mean later? What will happen later? And it, that part of the film is so strong. So I can agree as a horror film, not that good as a dark comedy and thriller, really, really good. And this that core of just uh, David and the Rent-A-Pal, that's the best part. That's the fantastic part that keeps the, makes this film so great to me. I really like how you mentioned Will Wheaton, the villain, as a campy and over the top. 
and which he is, but at the same time, he's also menacing. As the film progresses, it becomes creepier and it, it gets quite unsettling. And I would agree that the horror elements are perhaps the, the weakest aspect of the film, but I'd still say that they are very strong. I think for a directorial debut, it's a really impressive feature you know, because it balances a, a, a mix of genres. You've got the comedy there and the horror and the thriller elements. And it does so really well. And I'm very excited to see what John Stevenson works on next because if he continues to make films of this caliber, I think he's going to turn into a very interesting filmmaker. I couldn't agree more. So, moving on to Saul, what is your third favorite film of 2020? There are not a lot of films that have made me laugh out loud in a movie theater packed with strangers. I try to restrain myself a bit when watching comedies in public, but for whatever the case may be, the film films that have caused me to laugh out loud in the cinema screening are firmly implanted in my mind because it just doesn't happen a lot. My number three is one such comedy, a film that had me laughing out loud for minutes after certain scenes had ended. The previous time that I remember laughing so loudly in public was the tomato sauce scene in Parasite. So what was this film that caused me to lose myself? My number three of 2020 has a moronic title, literally. It's called Bye Bye Morons in English. It's a French comedy that won the most recent Caesar Award for Best Film. It's something that I initially had no interest in seeing because of how stupid the title made it sound. And then the comments started coming in, the reviews started coming in on the ICM forum, and I became intrigued and I decided to finally catch up with it while it was still showing in my local art house cinema. So the film Bye Bye Morons is about an IT expert who the police hilariously mistake for a psychotic killer after a bungled suicide attempt. He enters into an odd pact with a dying woman to clear his name. She has the only evidence of his innocence and will only help him out if he helps her to find a long lost son. Some of the humour is in questionable taste. There's a bit that mocks disabilities, although I absolutely love the blind character myself. Most of the puns, though, are sharply aimed at incompetent policemen. Particularly funny is one detective's over-analysis of the protagonist's possible motives for shooting up his workplace, coming out with some of the most absurd reasons imaginable, with everybody else in the room nodding and agreeing. The film takes some fun stabs at bureaucracy too and the vulnerability of buildings that rely too heavily on technology. And there's an absolutely um, hilarious part with um, a couple of elevators in a building that go completely out of control. So, yeah, it was just a very hilarious, um, funny, involving film with just a lot of your really unexpected parts. The initial suicide attempt just had me laughing for minutes afterwards with everybody's panicked reactions to it. I love how you explain it, laughing at the suicide attempt. It sounds so wrong, but if you see the film, you'll, uh, you'll certainly see why Sol find it so amusing. So Bye Bye Morons was my number four film of the year, and it's a touching French comedy with all the charm of a Jean-Pierre Junot film. It tells the troubling tale of a mother on a quest to find the baby she gave up for adoption when she fell pregnant as a teenager. And this journey becomes even more eventful when she crosses paths with the aforementioned suicidal businessman. Director Albert Dupontel clearly takes great pleasure in sending up the bureaucracy of the ruling authorities. And there are homages to Terry Gilliam's Brazil that assert this amusing perspective. It's a crazy and unpredictable film with a quirky sensibility that makes it hard to predict what may come next. 
and the emotional finale is perfectly fitting and helps to establish Bye Bye Morons as a surefire crowd pleader with a surprising amount of heart. Yeah, I have to agree. I mean, as a comedy about uh, about suicide, essentially, it's a it's a blast. It's so stylish, and the comparisons to Jean Pierre Jeanette are spot on. Or, or perhaps uh, we can compare it to uh, the films of the Belgian Jacobin uh, Dermel as as well. It's that exact type of over stylization, this kind of cutesier elements, this type of ritual play. It's just this hyper-stylized world with this kind of almost cute, overly visual expression where just everything is kind of comedic, everything is kind of stylized, and it works really, really well. I think the one thing I have to say here, though, is that while a lot of the humor hits but on, it does feel a little slighter than the best films by Jeanette and uh, Van der Maal. A lot of the, for instance, the character ending seems a little bit less thought out. A lot of the humor seems a little bit lighter. And we, we, I'm not, we probably won't go into the ending, but I was, I know some people love the ending. I was not that enamored by it. It seemed almost a little bit random given what especially one of the characters have been trying to do. I, I'm torn a little bit on the film, but it's, it's a very good film. It's just filled with laughs, filled with great stylings. So definitely recommend it to everyone. So Adieu les cons, or Bye Bye Moans, which, which by the way is a pretty good translation of the title, though it, it's more like Farewell Moans, more final, uh, is a film that I actually had a lot of expectation for because I really like Albert Dupontel in general. I don't know if you guys are familiar with him as a, as a filmmaker or as an actor. He's, he's quite a well-known figure in France. Uh, but one of his previous films, uh, Au revoir là or See You Up There, is a film I love. And so I was really expecting this one. And I'll land somewhere closer to Chris. I really love the worlds that Dupontel uh, sets his stories in. Uh, you guys mentioned Jean-Pierre Jeunet and Terry Gilliam, who actually has a cameo in the film. Uh, that's definitely spot on. And, and yeah, all of his films are like this, and I really enjoy being in them. But maybe it's because it's a contemporary setting that I had a little more trouble with as opposed to some of his other films that are uh, that are period films. But yeah, I don't know. I had some issues with the tone. Uh, like Chris, I was not a big fan of the ending. Uh, but that being said, I think it's overall just, um, we say Romanesque in French, the, like a novel, uh, in that kind of improbable things are happening all the time. And it has that you know, that adventure, that rhythm that is is really good and that, that humor that Saul mentioned. And I think in general it works quite well and Virginie Fira, the, the lead actress, and Dupontel himself are very charismatic and very funny. I, I, I don't know. I don't know what to do with this film. I guess in some ways it, it wasn't ex- exactly what I expected and maybe that's unfair of me. Uh, but it is successful at what it's trying to do, I think. I just never quite uh, got on his, on its wavelength uh, 100%. That being said, uh, if you like this kind of universe, I really recommend uh, watching his other films, especially uh, See You Out There. That's a great recommendation, but you haven't seen anything else by Dupontel, but I will say that the directing style, the way the camera moves, the, uh, the cinematography, uh, a lot of just the way he times comedy as well, it's spot on, so I would really like to see what he would do with you know, material that might be even more inclined to like. So. This was a really strong film. I thoroughly enjoyed it. If uh, he has even stronger films out there, I can't wait to see them. 
Yeah, I did just uh, check um, while um, Mathieu was talking, and no, I haven't seen anything else by Dupontel, so this is the first film I've seen from him, so I guess I was entering with different expectations. I had heard some very mixed comments also, so even though some people were comparing it to, like, Brazil and Amelie, and some people were saying, you know, it's a terrible film, so I guess I was had, like, lowish expectations going into it. I was curious about it more than anything else. And I guess the film just blew me away. I guess, you know, as Tom said before, never would expect today's suicide comedy to be, be uh, quite so hysterically funny. Uh, in terms of the ending, uh, I like it. Uh, Chris described it as random. Um, I'm not sure. I think I'd actually describe it as maybe inevitable. It's sort of the way that things were going to go because the film is all about, you know, police incompetence and bundling of detectives or over-analyzing things and taking things out of context and looking at it in an incorrect way. So I think the way they actually end up going is sort of inevitable. Uh, but, yeah, no, I don't know. The film just really worked for me. Yeah, I think you've got a point with that about the ending. So and that's why I mentioned expectations, not just in expecting that it would be good. That's not the only thing I meant. It's also, I guess, when we got to that ending, I realized that Maybe I wasn't, yeah, on the film's wavelength because the ending, I think I agree with you, it makes sense for the film, but I did not, I guess it did not make sense to me in some way, so I, I should probably watch it at some point. Yeah, but uh, I see what both of you are saying really about it. Yeah, I'll, I'll say the same thing, or almost. I think that ending was definitely where it wanted to go. I think it makes complete sense for one of the characters, but just given what one of, uh, Given what the other character had been trying to do and the motivation that character had to even participate in all of this made the ending make a little bit less sense to me. But uh, yeah, like I just said, it's a really good film. You should definitely see it. And that probably takes us over to my third favorite film, which is not a charming comedy. Um, not at all, really. It is uh, There Is No Evil by Mohamed Rasulouf. And this may be one of the bravest denunciations of the oppressive Iranian regime and what is accepted as the rule of law. Uh, there is no evil leaves the vile just on the edges and focuses on the mundanity, the familiarity and the intimacy of life, all amidst actions and choices of deadly and everlasting consequences. You know, in exploring close relationships and the choices people make or do not make, there is no evil places an emphasis on submission or assistance in what soon becomes clear to be a no-win situation. This connected team carries through four separate stories, capturing entirely different emotional motifs, characters, stories, levels of tensions, and this leads us to a sneaking realization of just this somber life that has this kind of terrible edges just to the side of your view. I mean, I really can't say much more than that without spoiling the film. I mean, what I perhaps can say is that each of the stories ends up in one way or another linking itself to the idea of a specific kind of state violence and of a particularly strong and controversial kind. It impacts so many punches. And let's just put it like this without, again, spoiling anything. The first encounter in the film with this evil in question, it just seems to come out of nowhere and 
it, it's just turns into a gateway of exploring these ideas of whether regular people really have a choice and the consequences of the choices they make. It's a stunningly bleak, clear film that I think will have a lot of effect on almost anyone who watches it. I'm really pleased that Chris brought this film to my attention because so far in this episode, it seems like we've not seen eye to eye on on his nominations, but I've got to say that this was a beautifully shot film with four powerful stories linked thematically that explore, I won't say it because Chris didn't want to say it, but explore a traumatic uh, act that has an impact on those affected by it. Now, I could have quite happily watched a feature-length film on each of the four short stories. They're hugely engrossing, and the performances capture the raw emotional turmoil of those whose lives are thrown into disarray by the tragic events that the that we uh, witness here. So it's a, a great film, uh, highly recommended, and narrowly missed out on a placement in my top ten of the year. Uh, this is one of two films uh, in this episode, along with Tom's number two, uh, which I'm waiting for a cinema release here in the fall. I'm really looking forward to it. The, the way you describe it both um, really sounds at my alley like something I, I would like a lot. So really looking forward to, to that film. Yeah, I hope all of our listeners will also make the choice of seeking out There Is No Evil in the cinema if you can and anywhere else if the cinema is not an option. And that actually concludes our third favorite films. We're on to our second favorite films of the year already. And uh, once again, we can start... Uh, with Mathieu. Yep, so my number two is La Nuée, or The Swarm. Uh, that's a French horror film. That's one of the most tense and uncomfortable experiences I've had in a cinema in a while. And that's even accounting for the COVID closures. And it's about a woman with two children who is trying to make a living of raising locusts in the French countryside. Uh, Juste Philippot, the director, really milks the kind of reaction we tend to have, or at least I do, I know some of my co-hosts uh, don't feel the same way, to insects of, if not disgust, or feeling of some, at least the feeling of being uncomfortable. Maybe because insects are the animals that build the most human-like societies in some ways, with these complex, almost industrial structures. When they're in big numbers, swarm, if you will, uh, they're scary because you feel like they're kind of better organized than we are, and therefore are always a potential threat. And Filippo really uses all of that cultural baggage, I mean locusts are one of the plagues of Egypt, uh, for all it's worth, very gradually raising the tension, mostly through sound design, as an incident causes the insects to become much more active. He's essentially telling the story of a woman who has tried to get back to some sort of an artisanal lifestyle like many people are doing today with climate change, but who just cannot actually make it work and has to surrender herself to something that becomes industrial almost. And insects are the perfect metaphor for that oppressive side of industrialization, of productivity. They're always buzzing around, always active. And Filippo patiently builds tremendous tension out of that. And when that finally reaches its boiling point, it very much fulfills the expectations he's built up for me. We do get a great uh, horror finale, even though I have some qualms with the notes the film ends on, but aside from that, it's just a, uh, an excellent final sequence. He delivers everything that I feel horror does best, which is 
to use a pretty blunt metaphor about modern life, while exploiting our fears of both natural things, in this case locusts, and of what aspect of humanity those things can represent. It's a debut feature and the fruit of a new program made to finance French genre films, which have often been underfunded in our you know, state-sponsored system. Uh, it's been a recurring issue that ask any French cinephiles, they always complain about genre having a place here. So as such, I don't think, I think this film is one of the best examples of what horror can bring to the table, French art house style in some ways, right? Because it is a psychological drama that veers into horror, even though it's there from the beginning. I think it's, it's just very effective all around. I love how you kind of trying to sell to the art house crowd in that it's just uh, horror seeped into the psychological art house drama. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much what I loved here as well. I mean, the core is actually an almost minimalist, not quite, but just this very bare boned, simple family drama with limited dialogue where you just feel their emotional states. And then you have this activity of the swarm that just builds so much dread, especially as things start to go slightly wrong and you see the mother engaged in something that could end up in a very, very terrible way. I mean, dread is just built into it all along the way with such simple tools. And I, I agree completely that, you know, the swarm is almost metaphorical or just an ex- both in terms of climate change, etc., but also just in terms of the mother's emotional state. There is essentially just an extension of her and the, the, what she does with them is gross. It, it's disturbing. It's powerfully, visually and emotionally. And all of this just sort of spills more and more dread, more and more and more tension onto this already stripped back, uh, suspenseful family drama where, where you just feel the atmosphere is about to explode. Um, like you, I might have some reservations about the ending where it, you know, truly enters that horror territory. And just like I said with Rentapal, it takes some maybe slightly more simple solutions there. But like from beginning to end, it's, it's such an emotional roller coaster, so suspenseful, so strong. And it's just such uh, a strong cinematic eye. I mean, the, the camera work, uh, the tension, the, uh, just everything that goes into this is shot and feels like a strong psychological drama. So it's just highly recommended to both camps, really. People who love horror, people who love art of cinema, people who just love strong dramas. It has all of it there with that extremely uneasy dread of uh, some kind of oncoming terror from the locust. So highly recommended to essentially everyone. Oh, and now available on Netflix. Yeah, The Swarm didn't quite do it all for me. I did end up seeing it on Netflix because that's how it's been released in Australia. So I don't know, maybe it would have been different as a cinematic viewing. But the psychological drama that the two of you have talked about just did absolutely nothing for me. I actually thought it was more like melodrama or soap opera level. We've got, you know, the teenage girl being bullied. There's a mention of a dead father who may or may not have committed suicide and then that's overlooked and it's never mentioned again. And, you know, she's resentful of her mum because her mum's, you know, doing something that's 
a little bit um, revolting or disgusting to some people. And, you know, and there's issues with the brother also. And it's like blah, 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 blah. Anyway, you know, after about an hour or so, the horror does kick in. And that's when I actually started to really like the film. And just a little bit of warning to anybody listening who hasn't seen it, I am going to spoil a little bit of The Swarm because I don't think I can really discuss my reaction properly without a spoiler. So you guys have been warned. Okay, so with what the film gets to eventually is what I thought was a bit of a throwback to the mad scientist films of yesteryear because the mum becomes increasingly obsessed with uh, feeding and breeding the mosquitoes and mosquitoes, the locusts. So she feeds and breeds the locusts by feeding them human blood, which is all actually really interesting, especially when she decides to use her, home, her own blood in it. But the way I sort of see that going is something more akin to Little Shop of Horrors. In Little Show of Horrors, you've got the uh, talking plant and you're feeding humans to the talking plant. And that's sort of where I saw, you know, the swarm going or whatever with, you know, her feeding pets to it and, you know, trying to feed other people just to get that insatiable human blood. And then it gets to the stage where she's using her own blood to feed her, which I think just goes to the absolute, you know, depths of, you know, where you're in the mad sides can go. It reminds me a bit of Brundlefly from the fly by Cronenberg with how involved she gets in it. So all of that I thought was really interesting, even though the film doesn't play up the black comedy, just the whole obsession with it, the obsession of getting the blood, getting a locust to um, swarm uh, because of the blood, and also the whole, you know, pro-veganism message that comes along with it, you know, that she's breeding these locusts in order to be eaten as protein snacks, but instead the locusts are eating or at least feeding on humans. So I thought that was all really cool, but all of that's in the last third Maybe, if I'm generous, last half of the film. The entire first half of the film, though, is just this, I'm sorry to say it, boring, absolutely boring melodrama that I couldn't, you know, possibly stand. So overall, I think I liked the film because it ended on a strong note. But just the lead I was before the horror ignited had me, you know, sort of, you know, go, oh, where is this going? I feel as if I've watched a different film to Chris and Matthew. Um, like Solo is quite bored uh, within the first half of the film. And to be honest, I didn't really feel like it, it went anywhere. Um, I'm rarely on board with creature features. I, I trouble buying into them. Locusts, I just don't see them as scary. I used to keep locusts when I was younger. Don't find them repulsive in the slightest. And I do think it's a neat idea, um, but it didn't make much of an impression on me. Maybe if I'd have got something out of the psychological drama aspect that Chris and Matthew mentioned, it might have done something for me. But as it was, um, the creature feature aspect didn't really scare me or disturb me um, to any length. And as I said, the psychological aspects didn't really work for me either. So a bit of a lukewarm, tepid response from me. An okay diversion, but nothing to really write home about. Yeah, it's really interesting that you say that Lucas are not disturbing to you at all. Because yeah, it makes sense that the film would not work for you <laughs> then because yeah, I think, I think it really relies on the cultural associations we have with it. And yeah, so if you find them pleasant to be around, um, a lot of what the film does is just not going to work. The, the, the fact that you guys didn't respond to the psychological drama. Yeah, yeah, I, I guess if you, if you want more of a dark comedy out of it, yeah, it's, it's just not going to, to give you that. And, and I definitely get how it can feel a bit self-serious, I guess. Because it is. I, th I think it's using the metaphor to talk about the world we live in in a way that is serious. And if you don't get into that, 
I, I definitely see how it, how it can be boring, but yeah, I, I was very, very into it fr- from the start. And I think the, the sound design is, is really a huge part of that performance. Uh, and also a very good performance uh, by the main actress, the main actress, uh, Sufyan Brahim. I think at least I really liked Something else I just thought I'd mention because I was going to respond to a little, you know, skip what slipped my mind. With insects, I do actually find them creepy. So unlike Tom, I did find the locust creepy, especially when I was crawling over that boy's finger at the start and eating his wart off. But I find them creepy not because, you know, that they're so well organized. I think they might overthrow us. I think it's because they look so different from mammals. So you sort of, you know, you see a dog, you see a cat, or even if you see a lion or whatever. It's got very similar facial features to us, but insects with like eyes on either side of their face. So they're not like in the front of the face or with many different sets of eyes, many different sets of legs. They look very different to humans, much more than mammals do. So for that reason, I find them creepy. So yeah, that part of it worked for me, I guess, even though the melodrama still wasn't quite my cup of tea. I think just one thing I will disagree with is the melodrama part because I didn't really see any melodrama in it. I agree that there are elements of the plot that could be construed as melodramatic and could be melodramatic if played that way, but I just think that when the style is so subdued and bleak and slow-burning, you know, you don't... At least to me, that can't be melodrama because melodrama needs to have a certain degree of over-the-top delivery and on-your-sleeve emotion. I mean, it doesn't always have to be Douglas Sirk necessarily, but there has to be something extra when it borders like this kind of more bare-boned, near-minimalist, slow-burning presentation as here. At least I personally would never call it melodrama, and also it makes it work better for me because when it's simplified that much and you take the words out of it and it's more about the emotions and more conventional character setups, for instance, uh, doesn't bother me. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, it felt much more stripped down to me that something that could be called melodrama. But about your point, Saul, I agree that obviously part of what makes insects a good horror monster, right, is how different they are. But it's a combination of the two, right? I think it's also a reason why we often use insects uh, for aliens, right, or insect-like creatures. Obviously, we mostly use humanoids because we love to talk about ourselves. <laughs> uh, but when we don't, it's often insect-like creatures, right, that we use as aliens. And I think that's telling, right? You don't have bovine aliens. Uh, <laughs> not so much, anyway. No, no, that's a good point about the aliens. But, you know, I haven't actually uh, phoned up and asked Ridley Scott, or maybe I should or whatever, but, you know, like with the xenomorphs, uh, I think the reason why they're scary is because, you know, they're like insects that look so different to us rather than because of, you know, the their capacity to be organized. That was the only point I was getting on. With the melodrama, I actually take the point you guys said on board. I guess describing the film as a melodrama would be misleading because it is quite slow burn paced. It's more that it's got bursts of melodrama. So there is a lot of slow burn. There's a great, you know, overhead shot as it's like driving along in darkness at the start. There's lots of great slow atmospheric moments. But whenever the characters interacted, you know, it felt like I was watching a soap opera. But, you know, it's up to me. It's a personal thing. I guess the uh, drama between the mother and daughter in particular and between the daughter and the uh, bullies just, you know, did absolutely nothing for me. Yeah, I guess it's more a question of self-seriousness. But it's a film that does take itself seriously. I think you could say that as a criticism of it if, if it doesn't work. Uh, I think maybe that's why you, what you're getting at. Yeah, I can. I, I agree with that too. I mean, if it doesn't work for you, especially if you don't find locusts scary, uh, the self-seriousness can definitely uh, rub some people the wrong way. 
But moving on from that, uh, Tom, what is your number two favorite film of 2020? My number two film is Quo Vadis Ada, which is an earth-shattering account of the Bosnian genocide that took place in 1995, told primarily through the experiences of Ada, a translator working for the UN who is stationed at a compound set up as a safe haven for refugees. This compound becomes inundated by citizens escaping from the Serbian army. And when the army make their approach, Ada does everything within her power to protect those she loves. Now, the cinema verite style places us in the centre of the unfolding nightmare as the camera follows Ada around the compound as she's desperately seeking a way out of the situation for her family. This style of filmmaking will feel familiar to those fond of uh, the work of Paul Greengrass, such as Captain Phillips and Bloody Sunday. And it depicts the true horror of the events with an authenticity that shakes you to the core by placing you in the heart of the action. The powerful performance by Jasna Duracic, I hope my pronunciation is on point there, in the central role of Ada provides an emotional hook that resonates long after the credits have finished rolling. She encapsulates the fighting spirit of a fearful mother in a haunting way that really brings the film to life. Ada's story is harrowing and devastating, though it needed to be told as it sheds a light on a deeply disturbing event in recent history that provides an important lesson for anyone who watches it. This is exceptional filmmaking with a vital message, and that is why Quo Vedis Ida is my second favourite film of 2020. Yes, Quo Vedis Ida is a great film and it's another slow burning uh, human drama but without uh, a swarm of locusts threatening on the, on the far instead it is the serbian army i i think that it is a very good introduction to events that may already be forgotten by many by many people in europe i mean this was one of the last real wars in Europe and I think it's fairly close to home and it, it just covers everything from the capitulation to the drama of the refugees and, and just the terror and fear it, it incredibly well. It, it's, it's a very effective story. It, it, it shows just how broken uh, these people are. It, it, it shows how desperate they are. They show how the, everyone feels that something worse is coming. And also this sense of essentially almost walking into their own doom. I don't really have much negative to say about it. I mean, it's a great film. Uh, there's no pretensions. Uh, there's even not that much sentimentality, maybe a little bit towards the ending, but it's just a very good, almost... Uh, just showcase of what happened. I do think that human drama at the center of it is a little bit constructed, but that's just so we have some characters to actually care about and be drawn into, and that part works perfectly well uh, too. It's not an overly visual film, but that's not needed. It has all of the emotional power right there. It has carried so many heavy punches. It's a very heavy film to watch, and I do think it's, you know, being so effective as it is, dealing with such strong feelings as it does, and covering it in such an expansive way. Uh, I think 
everyone will at the very least get something out of it. Um, so highly recommended to everyone listening. It's a very strong film that will most likely, if not bring you down, put a bit of a damper on your day, but in the best way that films can do that. It's definitely a difficult viewing experience, Chris. I would agree with you there. Even if it wasn't based on true events, it would be a harrowing watch. And these films, I I always get something out of them. They really resonate with me. But the fact that it's based on a true story and it's such a bleak and and tragic tale, it really struck a chord with me. Um, Very emotional film, very draining, but also very rewarding and, and very important. So I hope that some listeners will, will go and check it out based on our recommendation. And me too. And I, I think also for those of us who knew what would happen and, and knew what uh, the development of this war is, there's also additional emotions put in here. And just the way it's so bureaucratic, the way so much of it is so cold, the way you see the UN essentially failing, being naive, not standing up enough. It's just such a disheartening watch. And you can probably, being in the times we're in now, obviously, with Afghanistan, etc., as well, bring lots of uh, contemporary parallels too. So it's just a very strong film that really delivers its emotional punches. As I mentioned, definitely another one I'm looking forward to seeing uh, later this year when it comes out. And moving on to Saul's second favorite film, which is actually my second uh, favorite film of the year as well. So I'm really excited to hear what he has to say about it. Okay, so my second favorite film of 2020 and Chris's second favorite film of 2020. Actually, I can't speak for him, so I'll just speak for my personal experience. Um, It's a movie that I wanted to see from the moment I first saw a trailer for it. The trailer was deliberately vague and suggestive, and all that I really knew about the film going into it is it was about a young woman getting the upper hand on predatory men. and it starred Carrie Mulligan. That's all I knew about it. The film is, of course, Promising Young Woman from Emerald Fennell. The film is one of those movies best ended into with few expectations because it takes us on quite a wild ride. But suffice it to say that the film principally focuses on rape, sexual abuse, and a culture that sweeps such crimes under the carpet. The movie actually has something more universal to offer. It's populated by guilty characters who constantly claim that they are nice or they are good human beings. And the only character who actually admits to doing something bad in the film was declared insane and made to take leave by his company. So that character is a lawyer who defended one of the predatory men, played by Alfred Molina in an absolutely amazing performance. And I think that's quite a strong part of the film. That it's not just about, you know, predatory men and, you know, rape and getting away with it. It's about the our culture in which these people still see themselves as good people or nice people. And those who admit to making mistakes are disciplined for it or made to take leave. And like I said, Alfred Molina is absolutely excellent in the film, but not to dwell on him, this is Carrie Mulligan's film, first and foremost, and right up until the end. With her condescending, near-sarcastic way of talking down to men and her more vulnerable moments alone, Mulligan hits every note perfectly. The film is a little bit bombastic, and while emotionally affecting, the ending doesn't totally gel for me. But with all the measured doses of neon, pop music, dark comic relief, 
It's an experience that really lingers. The film stayed with me the entire night after watching it in the cinema, and I was still thinking about it in the morning afterwards. I wouldn't quite go as far as Kong's speech, one of our forum users, who believes that it's the best film ever made. However, she's not far off the mark. It's a truly great film for the ages, and it actually spellbound that it's my number two, and it actually managed to find something even better, because that's how great a film Promising Young Woman is. I mean, I, I think this uh, Promising Young Woman, in a way, is like a culmination of what uh, both of us love. So you have this kind of uh, pop art style that uh, you obviously fell in love with, for instance, in uh, I Care A Lot. And then it has that added, you know, philosophical and sociological and meta-commentary and uh, satirical twists that uh, I absolutely love. And this one, I mean, when I talked about I care a lot not going all the way. Promising young woman does. It takes those aesthetics, it takes that play, but then it also speaks directly to the audience in a way, not by actually just breaking the fourth wall. I don't, it, it does it by making everyone terribly uncomfortable. This is a black comedy. It's a bleak black comedy and a satire that just consistently makes us we see at every turn while mixing in this over-the-top aesthetic elements, uh, so much play and fun and style with extremely unnerving, uh, real social themes that have been obviously been, uh, brought to the front over the last few years. And I, I think what you brought out that's so important with this film is that characters that do quite terrible things, some, some atrocious things even, believe they're perfectly nice people. And this is just such a large part of the fabric. I mean, I've been reading interviews with Emerald Fennell, which says that she you know, specifically cast characters in these nice guy roles, if you will, that, you know, could have been expected to hold down, you know, a lead in a romantic comedy. Like people like Adam Brody, for instance. It's like a knife consistently being stabbed in your dark because it's such a bright, colorful, pleasant visual world, if you can say that. And then you have so much darkness inside it that stabs at you at all points. It's just showing how society in, in so many ways is broken and how the norms are broken and how people believe that completely unacceptable behavior up to and including rape is kind of acceptable and all of these people who create stories that they're nice may all just be lying to themselves and there's different characters here at different levels of nastiness or oversteps and it's kind of like it's having a conversation with the audience again like are, are you these people are you just lying to yourself like would you ever cross the line and how far would you cross the line it's a very unnerving like I said film in, in this regard especially I think for male audience members who may think of how either they've acted or their friends may have acted or how society around them acted it's just a really confrontational film and it also is confrontational against women and how they act and how they accept the oversteps of men uh, around them. So it, it's just such a great, great film that managed to take something so urgent, so instantly political, and punch you in the face with it over and over again while maintaining this fun atmosphere and this dynamism that just, for me, hits all the notes. It's a wonderful film. I won't even go ne uh, negative against the ending, though it's probably one of the slighter parts of the film. 
it just knocks it out of the park. It's one of the best films, not just of the year, but of the decade, maybe uh, on an extended all-time list as well. It's just absolutely fantastic in every way. So th- this is an interesting film to discuss in, in the context of this, this top five, because I feel like it relates a lot to some of the films that I had some issues with, like Rohan Topal and, and um, I Care A Lot, but it actually gets that balance right. That, that, that tonal balance uh, that, Chris, you mentioned, of this acerbic take on the, on the nice guy archetype, but with this very pop and fun uh, visual style. And yeah, I think it's a very difficult balance to find, and this film really finds it, in part because of Carrie Mulligan uh, who is this very charismatic performer and, and very precise actress. And I think Emerald Fennell, this is a debut film, but yeah, she, the tone is what's key about this film and she manages it uh, very well. I agree with Saul about the Alfred Molina scene, which is a, a standout, but to me the, the best part of the film was the, the whole Bull Burnham bit, I guess. Uh, I don't know how to describe it, but yes. Uh, the whole thing with Bull Burnham, I think, is a perfect encapsulation of what the film is doing at its best. I do have some issues. Uh, Chris mentioned the ending briefly. I don't know if we'll get into it, but yes, I do have some issues with that. But overall, I think this film really, yeah, really gets the balance right, and it's it's a very hard thing to do. So yeah, it's it's remarkable in that way. Promising Young Woman is a very strong revenge film. I really enjoyed it, and there's just so much to discuss about it. Um, when I watched it with my partner Sarah, she really enjoyed the feminist angle of the film. And it paved the way for some great discussions. And I love that about a film when there's lots to unpack and, and think about after watching it. One thing that I, I did find quite jarring was some of the music choices, which were a little off-putting. The scene in the pharmacy where they were dancing and singing to Paris Hilton felt really out of place. But most of the soundtrack worked really well, particularly the reworking of Britney Spears' is Toxic. thought that was a great choice to include that. Now, I want to go briefly into spoilers here. So spoiler warning for anyone who's listening who hasn't seen the film. Now, I find it really interesting how meticulous the plans of Carey Mulligan's characters were throughout the film. Everything was, you know, executed perfectly. She had everything planned out. And then it really bugged me when, towards the end of the film, her undoing, when the person she has she is exacting revenge on, breaks out of the handcuff and that causes her undoing. It feels to me that everything beforehand has been so perfectly executed that that couldn't be a mistake. And my interpretation of it was that she actually intended to die. As soon as she's exacted her revenge, that's it. She's completed her mission and, you know, she'd had enough and she wanted to be out of there. And I was just curious to find out if the other co-hosts had a similar interpretation of me or whether... I don't know, I'm, I'm barking up the wrong tree. So, yeah, I'd love to know if, if what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, I think that's a valid point. And the ending also, yeah, had me going a little bit uh, also. So I think I agree. She's had so much meticulous planning there. It does seem strange that something as well as that could trip her up. I guess what got to me about the ending is you're having her and she's obviously pre-coded these text messages to come and arrive. And the text messages arrive on the guy's phone at the exact moment that the police turn up. And the police turn up at the exact right moment to interrupt the wedding. So there's a lot of convenient coincidences going on over there. It doesn't quite add up to me. 
I mean, even though you can say, okay, well, she got Alfred Molina to send text messages and he's there so he can time it. How can they actually time it for the police to arrive at the wedding at that point? How can they time it so it takes them exactly that many minutes or hours to find the body and then go and interrupt the plans at the wedding? The timing then, the coincidental nature of it is what made it my number two rather than my number one of the year, although it's still an amazing film. In terms of her motivations, look, I've had the same thought, Tom, that uh, maybe she did really intend to die because it is such a uh, strange thing to slip up on. I, I had a split mind on that, actually. Uh, part of uh, that is definitely something that crossed my mind that it could be that she actually intended to die. Though the alternative is also that it's a very realistic person to get to that if a woman, you know, consistently tries to exact revenge on men that is are physically stronger than her it can really easily go very very wrong and just to insert a degree of very brutal realism there uh, as well so that's i have a split mind on, on that topic though, bo- though both interpretations i think uh, work quite well on the ending like it's, yeah i agree it's a very easy ending it wraps it up almost a little bit too neatly but unlike soul i don't really see a uh, promising young woman as a realistic film i do see it as a satire i do see it with a film that just plays around and wants to throw these punches and want to have a start these conversations so i don't really place a focus on realism in that ending at all i don't think it's needed and i think it's uh, it's played as a joke in a very fun way and it works it is one of the slighter moments of the film but uh, for me at least it, it worked and just one more point to what Tom said. I don't actually think that Paris Hilton uh, song is out of place in this film at all. I think it actually ties in with the stylistic choices extremely well. So you have these pop songs throughout that's associated with young women. It's associated with, you know, not really being respectable or high culture or it's kind of like this pushed under the rug. And I think what the film does really well is it takes a lot of I guess, uh, prejudices and a lot of thoughts about essentially this, this, this over feminine role that Carrie Wilkins Cassandra is playing at too, because she is pretending to be this vapid women who are drunk and who are easy to take advantage of. Like that's part of her act. And I think the film plays the same act. It has that style. It has that fun. It has that. It, it's just a revenge flick. It has that kind of innocent vibe and then it tricks you. And I think that's those two things go so well together. And I think that's why that those strong choices work as well as they do. Yeah, I just want to add agreement to, to what Chris just said about the Paris Hilton scene. I think it's the film at its best, really. Really playing with audience expectations. The choice is very pointed. It's supposed to be in some way out of place, but also perfect for what uh, the film is doing, I think. Yeah, I can totally get that um, angle on the Paris Hilton song. I think for me, the whole production was very slick, almost quite cool and, and stylistic up until that point. But that song, it feels awkward and cringeworthy. And as you said, maybe that was the intention, but it, it, it felt jarring for me and, and took me out of what had been up to that point, a, you know, a brilliant experience and just kind of knocked it back slightly and how I felt about the film. That was a great discussion. I love it. We could actually break into spoilers there. Because if we actually put our top tens together, Promising Young Woman, just based on how much we disagree in general, would have topped that list. Which uh, probably make it interesting for you to hear about our number one favorite film of 2020. But, as I can see, we're already 
running close to the two hour mark here. Let's save that for next time in our glorious conclusion. Thank you all for listening and join us again soon. You have been listening to Talking Images, the official podcast of ICMforum.com.